On the record on News Talk. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. It's April the 3rd, and it was on this day in 1900 that Queen Victoria set sail for Ireland. It would end up being the final visit of her reign to this country. Of course, by then, as we, we all imagine on the outset of the 21st, 20th century, uh, there were changing attitudes towards her and towards royalism and towards independence and British rule, uh, to put it lightly. And the visit was defined by friction because the Victoria era was coming to an end. But then what was it then that forced her to come this way for one little last hurrah? And was it the hurrah actually that it was intended to be? Well, Donald Fallon, I'm sure, has been brushing off all of the Pathé newsreels and is going to come in speaking like this now it's like Mr De Valera went to see Mr Lloyd George and the royal correspondent of all the royal gossip for a week yes okay so so what have Harry and Meghan been up to Um, Victoria's time uh, it kind of seemed never ending because it sort of seemed like she'd been on the throne much like the present queen sort of seemed like she'd be there basically forever that she was all defining it's extraordinary from 1837 until 1901 she reigned over Britain so we know it as the Victorian age that made her the longest serving British monarch the longest female monarch in history at least that was true Mm. until Queen Elizabeth Elizabeth II. So that really t- makes you think about the reign of the current British monarch, doesn't it, in, in, in a different way? Yeah. But I suppose the big difference is you know, the world, yeah, look, things have changed a lot in the time of the current British monarch. Uh, the internet for one thing, but there was major, e- extraordinary, al- almost unbelievable advancement in the world in the Victorian age. I mean, it's a defining period of transformation for the world in transport, in architecture, in politics, in film, in art, you name it. You know, these islands and the empire more broadly, were just transformed by the Victorian age. And look, industrial revolution for Britain in Ireland, you know, it's a reign that coincides not with industrial revolution, unfortunately, Mm. but with the darkest episode of our story, uh, the Great Hunger. So it's extraordinary that this one woman who in Britain, you know, whose name is synonymous with the technological advancement of a people, Mm. in Ireland became something else entirely, I suppose. And that's what this visit was wrapped up in. It's actually just remarkable even when you just outline the the, the span. So it's 1837 to 1901. So this is the same person coming at the onset of the 20th century who had been there over 50 years ago at a time of the famine. It's just the the longevity, if nothing else, is just uh, incredible. Um, So this is the year 1900. Ireland is going through some of its own big changes when Victoria sets sail. Um, And there's some mixed opinions about this idea of hosting a visiting British monarch, even one who's in her twilight years. Yeah, so it's on on this exact day, uh, April April 3rd, that she sets sail. She arrives on on April 4th. And there's this massive discussion going on, I suppose, in the Irish press at the time, over should there be a Cade Mila Falcha or is it finally time to take a, a more critical view, if you will, of the empire next door. But that Ireland of 1900, it's a really weird society because it's, yeah, it's as you say, it's on the cusp of something big. Mm. The cultural revival hadn't really taken hold yet. The Abbey is still four years off, for example. Uh, and Todd Andrews, late, later Fianna Fáil stalwart, uh, he writes in his memoir about this being a weird moment in time. Dublin was a British city and accepted itself as one. Its way of life, its standard of values, its customs were identical to those of, say, Birmingham or Manchester, except to one extent where they were modified by one great big difference, religion. Mm. I wonder, was that actually true? You know, was Queen Victoria visiting a truly British city? I don't really think Todd was right on this. Mm. You know, I think the tensions were, were, were starting to come through in a bigger way. But this was a visit that would take in three weeks in the capital. That's the longest of her stays mm. uh, in Ireland. So there's a lot of debate around it and there's a lot of time to have that debate when she's here. I suppose even these days with the amount of the, the size of Dublin now and how much of a tourist city it is, I can't imagine you'd, there'd be much to do if you're going to spend three weeks <laughs> around rather than trying to, to do that Joycean puzzle of crossing the canals without passing a pub maybe, I don't know. Um, so then what does 
bring her here? Because there, there's this perception, and you might have seen it with Charles and Camilla down in, in Waterford and Tipperary in the last week or two, um, that royal visits are basically just posh holidays. Yeah. So, so what's her actual <laughs> business here? I think, well, yeah, what motivates royal visits? I think at the heart of them, not merely in an Irish context, but, but internationally, they're often about politics. You know, timing is everything. And Queen Elizabeth II, her visit in 2011, which, you know, it frightens me actually how fresh that feels in the mind yeah, and in, in the memory. years ago, yeah. Uh, you know, that visit was in the context of a very different politics, yes, but it was still motivated by a political picture. That was all about solidifying the Irish peace process. And in the case of Victoria arriving here in 1900, the political imperative is not peace, it's, it's actually war. You know, the worsening crisis that is the Boer War in South Africa, or as they call it in Dublin, in the Dublin accent, the Boer War, but it's definitely the Boer War. Boer. Boer is <laughs> Afrikaans for, for farmer. But that war in South Africa, it, it had commenced in 1899, and not for the first or last time in British history, it had been predicted to be a quick victory. Oh, it's another they, one they, of these home by Christmas They have a tendency things. to do this, yeah. Okay. And, and the Boers, these plucky kind of, Protestant Dutch settlers uh, in South Africa were, were really, really putting the fight up to the British. And despite the fact we in Ireland had basically no shared culture or heritage with these people, mm. nationalist Ireland just rallied behind them because you know these were the men of action, if you will, these these Dutchmen in, in South Africa. So you get Gaelic football teams named after Boer generals. There's a racehorse called Kruger after the Boer president who, who wins a major race, which is a big <laughs> news story in Britain. Uh, Boers who probably never heard of Irish cities are being awarded the freedom of the city of Limerick. You know, like imagine Zelensky being given the freedom of the city of Limerick or yeah. something, and that's kind of what it's like. Yeah. That Ireland is just transfixed by this war. And Irish youngsters, young Irish people, it's like a boys' own adventure story. And that's boys' own, the, 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 uh, yeah, the, the, the comic magazine, book, not the band. Not the- <laughs> <laughs> but it's like a boys' own adventure story for Vital kids in Ireland. They're just, they're just transfixed by it. Seamus Robinson, who, who's later one of the, the young men who begins the War of Independence, he's a teenage boy. But he remembers in his memoir, heavens, what trills we got out of that great struggle. Bonfires in the streets on the news of a Boer victory. Complete disbelief in Boer reversals. The Irish Boer Brigade, how we wished we were old enough to be out there with them. So they bring Victoria Mm. to Ireland at a time when there's a real sense that the Irish public, if you will, are, are rallying behind the Boers. I think it is worth just saying, uh, for the record, because sometimes people uh, tend to think of Ireland as being, you know, a colony, and that of course there's always going to be a certain amount of residual, you know, annoyance about whatever the the, the colonial power is getting up to. Strictly speaking, of course, Ireland wasn't a colony. Ireland actually was part of the colonial master because you had half the world, which was being run by uh, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, and that's us. So we we are sort of. The, the colonising power as well as being one of the colonised. So the idea yeah. then that we are like naming Gaelic football teams after the people that, strictly speaking, our own men are going to fight yes. is, is is very interesting. And, and 28,000 of us, 28,000 Irish men fighting against the Boers in the ranks yeah, of the and, they, and they come home and they find that all the Gaelic football teams have been named after <laughs> the enemy. Um, so then, so is that what all this is then? So Victoria comes over in 1900 and, and it's basically a war drive. They're basically just specifically encouraging young fellas to go and sign up. Yeah, I mean, you can look at this too as a last hurrah. This is a woman who knew herself that she wasn't going to live forever. You know, she'd been in Ireland in the 1840s, the 50s, I think the 60s as well. But bringing a British monarch here during a war, that's not a coincidence. It is a war drive. And I mean, the Irish regiments in South Africa just a few weeks before she came here, uh, yeah, my own great granddad's regiment, the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, they're encouraged to wear shamrock on St. Patrick's Day. So there's a real attempt, if you will, to to bring Ireland back into the mm. back into the war, the war effort. But the the visiting site of a monarch, you know, to encourage patriotic feeling and enlistment, ultimately that's what it's about. And when she comes through the streets of Dublin, there are people there cheering. You know, there's a great account from from a, a contemporary eyewitness of what it's like. The fourth of April, nineteen hundred. 
The city of Dublin was filled to overflowing with visitors from all parts of the three kingdoms. Our historic capital rose equal to the occasion in every respect. The public decorations in the streets, the private decorations on the homes, not only all along the route, but in every part of the city, reached their climax at the Grand Canal Bridge at Leeson Street, the point of the city boundary at which the Queen, having passed through the townships of Pembroke and Ratmines, mm. was to enter Dublin. So you're only entering like these days it would be like oh you've just touched down at the airport now and someone's going to meet you in the runway those days it was the city. those days it was like your your carriage is coming past the Leeson Lounge and there you go now <laughs> maybe it was, maybe it wasn't the Leeson Lounge on the day or you're passing what used to be Godfather's Pizza uh, back when I used to live around the corner um, it was probably smarter to bring her then through that way to bring her around the south side and through Rathmines the township of it uh, than to bring her through the streets of the inner city yeah I mean these townships are basically their own political machines they have their own local council. They've they've Protestant majorities. They're more loyal politically, you know. Mm. I think we, we, we have talked about uh, Sir John Gray and him being responsible for the Rathmines Township, which is where the, the city's fresh water came from. He yeah. cracks the Vartry water scheme for, for Dublin, but it's, yeah. a, it's a wise political decision to bring her through these kind of townships. You know, they they kind of view Rathmines, I think, as more loyal territory than that of Dublin Corporation. And in the city, you know, between the canals. The idea of the Queen coming here, it's kind of divisive. The corporation has a vote on whether they should extend the formal welcome to the Queen. 32 people vote in favour, but 22 vote against. Okay. That's a lot of people. But it's a good tangible reminder then of just how sort of divided people are about whether we should be really breaking free from the Empire at that point or whether there's still at least the token of the head of state coming in. Exactly. And and as you get later royal visits, 1903, 1911, those numbers are changing and suddenly the the corporation is not in favour of welcoming. Uh, royals okay. to Dublin but the term that's utilised by her opponents and it pops up in the press in the weeks before she comes here it's really really cutting they call her the famine queen you know which is extraordinary this is the woman who'd been that's on the throne it's very evocative it's very evocative it's very emotive you know and W.T. Cosgrave who's a 19 year old a 19 year old a teenager he writes to the newspapers and he says you know within three years of Her Majesty's succession the population of Ireland was 9 million now it's only 4 million so this is you know someone who hasn't really emerged yet but you know, in, in two decades, will be the political leader of an Irish state. Mm. Extraordinary. But the most proactive voice of opposition, and I think the person who actually coins the term the famine queen, uh, is Maud Gon. She's this emerging really? young firebrand of the cultural revival. And the weird thing about this is, Maud Gon had actually been presented as a debutante, the Queen Victoria. She's a darling of the empire yeah. in her youth who has just reinvented herself as something else entirely. Which is actually, it's funny because, and maybe this is just a sign of 20th century misogyny, people would now remember Maud Gon for more about the, the men that she was romantically attached to and she doesn't often get remembered as being much of a firebrand in her own right. But if, if she was coining that, then evidently she was a, a fairly active political presence. Um, and she's out on the streets and then three years later, she's at it again uh, during another royal visit. But this time, the protest is a little bit more unusual. Yeah, it, the city is kind of... People will remember from 2011, actually, when Queen Elizabeth II was in Dublin. What I can remember is that it was very difficult to move around the city. Yeah. And this is what happens. You know, when monarchs arrive into places or heads of state arrive, they, they generally shut down cities for obvious reasons. And that's what it's like in 1900. You can't really move around the streets too much. So there's very limited protest. But in 1903, there's a second royal visit. By now, we, we, we have a King Edward, not a, not a, um, not a Queen Victoria mm. in the job. And Maud Gon marks that occasion by flying a black flag from her home. Well, the, the historians say a black flag from her home. One biographer dug a little bit deeper and discovered it wasn't a black flag. It was a black petticoat, which was obviously had. So yeah. dissenting lingerie yeah. was blowing <laughs> in the wind <laughs> of the posh Colson Avenue. 
Maud Gaunt's petticoat says no more royal visits. <laughs> Just that, that would be, that would be your, your main means of expressing malcontent would be to have like black knickers, Five black knickers at the window at the King of England. But this is this is you know Maud Gaunt's moment to shine, and she's really like behind her back. Some people in Dublin call her Maud Gaunt Mad. She's seen as a bit eccentric, a bit odd. Okay, but she is a, a firebrand. That she's very good at street protest, and and she really makes her presence felt in sometimes strange ways. But I think the defining moment of 1900 and, and Victoria is this big celebration in the Phoenix Park. They just fill the park with tens of thousands of school children and they gorge them on sweets for the occasion. I mean, these are kids from a city with no industry, probably don't have shoes on their feet. The yeah. idea of being packed into the Phoenix Park, well-dressed for the day and, and filled with sweets is, is, is too much for some of them. Yeah. But your know, children are too innocent, really, to grasp the broader context of the visit and the political bickering that's going on around it. And that picnic... Uh, of Victoria and 30, 50,000 depending who you read mm. children in the Phoenix Park that's the big image uh, and you can then you can imagine if it were the present day that there would be some like quite monotone like TV narration going it was all too much for some young revelers but of course the, the irony being that we actually if you go back to 1900 again we actually have some moving footage of Victoria and I mean I don't mean moving in an emotional sense I just mean that we actually yeah. have, have video footage of Victoria who's here and she does seem to be having a good time. Moving footage, and now you sound like the royal correspondent. Yeah. But, you know, they, they, there is this archival footage of Victoria in Ireland, which is absolutely mad. I mean, you're looking at someone who was born in 1818 on screen, and they're moving, and they're smiling, and they're waving at people. That's absolutely extraordinary yeah. stuff to see. And it was only discovered in really recent years, actually, the, the Museum of, of Modern Art in New York. They acquired 36 very early reels of news. And it was only when they went through them, they were like, oh, this is quite historically wow, important yeah. stuff. But yet to see someone who was born in, in 1818, I mean, decades before the famine, uh, on screen before your eyes is, is absolutely extraordinary. That footage is, is all over the internet, actually, mm. uh, if anyone wants to see it. But I mean, the fact is many people, tens of thousands of people, were happy to see her here. And, and that's part of the story, that there were still tens of thousands of people in Dublin who regarded this woman as, as their monarch and were happy, were happy to see her. Uh, Helena Maloney, who was a, a suffrage campaigner, a very close friend of Maud Gaughan and ally, she describes the visit as an orgy of flunkyism, which is, <laughs> wow. which is great language, but doesn't That's really capture poetry. the complexity of it. You know, th- this was a divided society, and I think you see that in, in that footage. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, then, if the uh, the corporation votes in the years afterwards about whether they just actually don't want to have anything to do with visits, it does illustrate just the, the changing minds that there were at the time. Um, and shortly after the visit, then, in 1900, comes a Victoria statue. And this is maybe the bit of the story that people might remember most. It's the bit that maybe most people have some, some familiarity with. Um, so we, we make or commission a, a, a statue of, of Victoria and then, tellingly enough, we, we try to give it away then afterwards. Yeah, I think what's great about the, the Victoria statue, like bits and pieces of it are still around Dublin. And you, you probably know them to see. Uh, people who work in, in, in journalism might know these bits and pieces. Some yeah. of them are in the grounds of the Doll, mm. uh, and other bits are in the grounds of, of Dublin Castle. This 15-foot Victoria. But they surround her with other figures, including a soldier of the Boer War. So really, like her, her right. she's remembered, I suppose, for that moment in time in, in, in Irish history. And John Hughes' great statue in the end, yeah, we gave it away. It, it's in uh, Australia, unbelievably. Mm. It's in Sydney, Australia. Uh, and there's a plaque on the monument. I think she's outside, outside a shopping centre, and the plaque says... At the request of the city of Sydney, this statue of Queen Victoria was presented by the government of people, uh, the government and people of Ireland, in a spirit of goodwill 
uh, on, on friendship until 1947. It stood in front of Leinster House, the seat of the Irish Parliament. So she was there for mm. more than two decades after independence, but you'll have to jump on a plane to see her today. Yeah, uh, I, I think in fairness, I think it is in front of a shopping centre, but it's also in front of some city or some sort of municipal parliament building or some sort of state state administration. So there, like, there is some reason. It's not just that she's there in front of like the Ilac Centre uh, like, look, looking for somewhere to go. When you say yeah, the, the other bits, a uh, nice little kind of a, a humor, slightly humorous anecdote uh, to finish up on. You mentioned the, the other bits and pieces of the statue that are still hanging around. As a companion to Victoria, who used to be on the Kildare Street side of Leinster House, on the Merrion Square side, they they built a companion statue of Prince Albert, her consort, for whom she was devastated when he died. And that's the reason, by the way, why they all still wear black around the Houses of Parliament, because they're all still notionally in mourning for the death of Prince Albert. A couple of years ago, somebody put in a petition to the Oireachtas Petitions Committee saying, lads, lads, independent country, what are we still doing with a statue of a royal consort out in the back? Can we not get rid? And they went and investigated and they actually discovered that Leinster House itself doesn't have the authority to get rid of that statue because it belongs to the OPW and not to Leinster House itself. So they'd have to to forward the request to the OPW and ask them to find some other sensitive or sensible thing to do with it. Um, But they also discovered in research that the guy who made the statue was actually a fairly prominent sculptor with the end result being that a petition aimed at getting rid of Prince Albert resulted in Prince Albert having more shrubs taken away from around him so that he was more visible uh, because people needed to be able to see this magnificent work of, of masonry that was right there. So Prince Albert still hanging around the Marion Square side of Leinster House uh, despite uh, Victoria having uh, packed up and basically left him quite quite a few decades ago as many marriages end up doing. Uh, Donald Fallon, uh, author of the Come Here To Me books and Henrietta Street from Tenement to Suburbia uh, available in all good bookshops now. Also presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast on Dublin History. You'll find that wherever you get your audio online. 